Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. V.S. Naipaul, winner of the 2001 Nobel Prize in Literature, died on August 11, 2018, just days before his 86th birthday. The author of such acclaimed novels as A House for Mr. Biswas, the Booker Prize winner in A Free State and A Bend in the River, and nonfiction works such as The Middle Passage and An Area of Darkness, Naipaul also had a well-deserved reputation as a dyspeptic and difficult personality, all of which came to light in the highly regarded memoir Servidia's Shadow, written in 1998 by his former protege, the novelist and travel writer Paul Theroux, whose three-decade friendship with Naipaul had just come to an end. On October 28, 1998, my former co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to speak with Paul Theroux about his memoir, about V.S. Naipaul, and about the creation of Servidia's Shadow. Here are highlights from that interview. The entire interview can be heard as a Radio Olinsky podcast in the Area 941 section of the kpfa.org website. Tell us first, who is V.S. Naipaul? He is still alive, correct? Oh, yes. Yeah, he's, he's about 66, 67 years old. You're interested in a potted biography of who he is and what he's doing? I can, uh, for, I, our, for our audience who may not know who he is. It's true. You know, I said to someone not too long ago, they said, what are you working on? I said, well, I'm just about to publish a book about V.S. Naipaul, and they squinted at me. Actually, the mouth gaped over. That's a way of asking a question. Oh, I said, uh, it's V.S. Naipaul. They had never heard of him, which is odd because he's constantly mentioned as a Nobel Prize contender. That may be a form of obscurity <laughs> since the Portuguese man who won it recently was pretty obscure even to me. Naipaul is a man in his late 60s. He was born in Trinidad of a Hindu Brahmin family, very proper family. At the young age of 17, he went to London, then Oxford. He was a star student in Port of Spain, Trinidad. He was a good student at Oxford. He had a nervous breakdown there, left, began writing, published his first novel in 1957. He was born in 32, published his first novel in uh, 57, The Mystic Messer. Subsequently, he traveled. He wrote a book called The Middle Passage, traveled through the Caribbean, and then wrote about India, about Africa, about South America. I think his masterpiece is A House for Mr. Biswas, excellent book, a Dickensian, rich, lovely, funny book. He has a reputation for being difficult, which he is, for being opinionated, which he is, for being very, very hard and asking very challenging questions about development, about Africa, about third world countries, about culture, English departments, which he thinks should be closed down, that sort of thing. He was married to an Englishwoman. She died. He married subsequently 
Pakistani woman to whom he is married now. And I met him in 1966 when I was in my early 20s and he was in his mid-30s. And after that, for 30 years, he was my friend, my mentor, my guide, my teacher. And I was his flunky friend, first reader. You know, I, I had a wonderful relationship with him. And to a very large extent, he made me a writer or made it easier for me to be a writer. Before we move on, one quick question. You have a foreshadowing in Servidia's shadow of a girl who you and Servidia, V.S. Naipaul, meet, and she later grows up to be Mrs. Naipaul. Is that fantasy on your part, or was that the girl? <laughs> Do you know, <laughs> Richard, you're a wicked man. This is a scrupulously honest, factual book, the one, <laughs> liber the one liberty I took in the book, which, well, here's, here's the story, see. I, we were in Africa, 1966 together, and used to go to Nairobi from time to time. I discovered after he married this woman that she was born in East Africa, that her parents had a shop in Nairobi. And I thought it was entirely possible, because Naipaul was very concerned about the fate of Indians in Kenya. You know, there was a 90% chance that we were on a street, that Naipaul was uh, uh, buying something or his wife was buying something at a shop where there was a small girl, a eight-year-old girl, little Nadira. What are you doing? All dressed like a little girl going to a party. And, and then we saw her and Naipaul, who was always saying, God, I hate children. God, I can't stand children. God, what a brat. That he saw this little girl and said, God, what a nightmare. Always in front of a little brat. And she's a kind of bratty little girl. Then I realized at the time, in, in hindsight, that was the future Mrs. Naipaul. It could have happened. It could have happened. Did it happen? Who knows? I mean, sure, we met a lot of little girls and Naipaul said, what a nightmare. And yes, it might have been her. The one liberty in a single <laughs> I thought it was a Nabokovian moment. <laughs> Dick Lipoff. Well, first of all, the book opens as a novel and very quickly shifts gears in which Paul Theroux comes on stage. He's already on stage, in fact, but in a, he changes his persona somewhat and says, oh, you know, who am I kidding? This is really about V.S. Naipaul and myself. The rest of the book is written as a memoir. I wonder why you retained the few pages of novelization at the beginning. Why, why is the whole book not just... A, a memoir. I did retain those pages. I, I wrote it that way. I decided to write it that way. And of course, the book is rewritten. But I thought that it's an interesting structural problem to start a book as a novel and then to break off in the middle and say, by the way, this isn't a novel. I can't continue this as a novel because everything I'm putting down is a fact. And I say in it, even if I wrote this as a novel, you would say, you, the reader, would say, this isn't a novel about you know, an Indian guy called Mr. Prasad or whoever. This is a book about V.S. Naipaul. So come clean. It's Naipaul, right? I've had this experience before. We're writing a novel or writing a memoir. People say, well, what's it really about? But it's really about this, isn't it? And I just thought that it was, it was an interesting way just to to befuddle the reader, to lull the reader, let's say, to, into thinking that it's a novel and to show the reader how a novel can shift gears and become a species of, of nonfiction. And I've never seen it done. I've never actually seen it done. So I thought I want the book 
to be taken as fact because it's written as a factual account. The idea of writing this as a novel did occur to me and I saw how blunted, how diffuse it would be if it were written as a novel and how I would be inventing. There's nothing to invent. The whole thing is as it happened. I didn't need to invent anything. If you're asking me, have I written about Naipaul before? Yeah, plenty of times. In My Secret History, which uh, Richard has read, uh, there's a character called S. Prasad. Prasad is an Indian writer who lives in London. I used Naipaul, but I took liberties with that character, so I didn't call him Naipaul. But I thought, that's not really Naipaul, but that's the essence of him. But that book is a novel. That My Secret History is not a memoir. It's not a a version of my autobiography. It really is a novel. I couldn't have slept with that many women. I, mm. Life isn't so symmetrical. In the last chapter of it, I go to India with my mistress. Then I go to India with my wife. Well, I didn't have a mistress. I didn't go to India. But I thought, the man with a problem goes to the same country with two particular women. Wouldn't that be interesting? Then everyone said when the book came out, oh, that's really your autobiography. So I, I thought, okay, I know. I'll write a real autobiography that you'll think is an autobiography and it'll all be fiction. It was my other life, which is completely fanciful. So you're saying, why did I write it this way? It was a plan. I did it in a very deliberate way and I thought it worked. My other life apparently received some criticism from your uh, ex-wife regarding events that didn't happen, claiming, well, if they didn't happen, why is my name there? Uh, right, her name isn't there, though. What I did was I changed her name. My wife, ex-wife, saw an issue of The New Yorker in which there was a story about Anthony Burgess. I mean, I love it that, that she wrote the letter because people were saying, oh, it's really Anthony Burgess. You know, this really happened. And there's my ex-wife saying, this is complete cobblers. This is baloney. This never happened. Why, am I, why is my name being used? But I was so scrupulous about inventing the truth that I thought, uh, okay, I'm going to leave her name. Then she wrote a letter to The New Yorker saying, this story is, in, is complete fiction. It never happened. I like Anthony Burgess. I didn't you know, refuse to make a meal for him. And then she appears in it. I, I thought it was quite a good story because it's about Anthony Burgess meeting one of his fans. Burgess drinks too much. The fan says, I didn't really like his books after all. It's a chapter against book collectors. <laughs> so my wife wrote this letter saying it's crap. It's never happened. So I say to anyone who said it's really a novel, I said, read my angry letter. There was um, a novel and Dick, maybe you can remember the title. I think it was by Donald Westlake. It's called A Likely Story. And in it, he describes a lot of real authors, real people and says, this is a novel about their personas, not who they really are. Mm. And I guess in a sense, that's what you were driving at here. We're supposed to be talking about Servidia's shadow, but I'll tell you what the backstory is to, to that particular Burgess thing. Once my wife and I did give a dinner and it was for a, a movie director who shall remain nameless and one of his greatest fans, a guy who loved all his movies. And the director showed up uh, and is very late drunk and his wife showed up later even drunker. And this friend of mine who loved this man's movies uh, uh, was telling him, how much you like the movie. And the man, <laughs> who's a very jolly guy actually, was saying, well, Michael, the man's name wasn't Michael. Well, Michael, I'll tell you this. And he kept getting his name wrong and teasing him and fooling. It wasn't serious. And at the end of it, the guy completely, this friend of mine went completely off the director and said, I hate his movies. I'm never going to see another movie. I never liked his movies. Uh, I couldn't write about those two. Both of them are friends of mine. 
Burgess was dead, and I invented the the book dealer. And I thought, well, I want to I want to write I, this. This happens in the book trade too. People collect books, and they meet an author, and look at authors because all the parts of this book and Servidia's Shadow, you know, too, is about what a writer's really like. It's not the persona, but writers are very dysfunctional people. You interview them all the time. You know, they come in. They're all shapes and sizes. They're weird. They're strange. <laughs> people don't become writers because they're nice, normal individuals. They become writers because they're dysfunctional. So Burgess was this director who's very creative was a weirdo. I'm a weirdo. Naipaul's a monster and a weirdo. But we're we're all, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, writers. And some of us do good work and some don't. I guess that's my obsessive subject, how weird we are. Let's get on to Servidia's shadow. You made an interesting point. You said, uh, well, I wrote this, Burgess is dead now. My question to you is this. I understand your reasons for writing Servidia's shadow. The question I have is, and I understand your reasons for writing it now, why didn't you wait until after he was gone? The thought of somebody being forced to confront their demons, it's like the legendary moment of the last moment of your life when everything flashes by and you see all your errors. Mm. Confronting someone with that in real life, that, that, that's a hardship. Yeah, well, it's obviously a problem. I don't know how much of a hardship since he, I think he's well aware of, of his personality since he's always commenting on it. It's also about my demons, uh, my inadequacies. I think it's the book that has never been written because it's a book about a writer by another writer, about a friendship. Both of them, I mean, I like to think that I'm a fairly accomplished writer. I'm not a, a, a spurned lover. I'm not an ex-wife. I'm not someone who really uh, w w was sleeping with him and had some romantic attachment. It was entirely intellectual. It was a friendship. And a friendship is a wonderful thing. It's purer than love. It's deeper than love, I think. And it ends in a much quicker way than a love affair. There's no going back from it. So you say, why did I wait? Because I might have dropped dead. I might have got hit by a bus. It might not happen. Why did I go to the carnival in Brazil last February? Because I had never gone. I thought, well, if another year goes, I might wait till next year and maybe something will happen. Maybe um, something to prevent me from going. Seize the day is my watchword. And it wasn't only that. I realized when I started writing it that it's a good subject and it hasn't been written. There's Boswell's Life of Johnson. Okay. There's James writing a partial portraits about Flaubert and, and Turgenev and, and various other people. There's Ford Maddox Ford writing about Conrad, Conrad, a personal remembrance, which he wrote immediately after Conrad died. When these books appeared, everyone hated them. If you saw the reviews of Boswell's Life of Johnson, you'd be amazed how people were talking about the impropriety of reporting private conversations and, and what a buffoon Boswell is and what an opportunist and how on the make he was. Well, he was to a certain extent. But I wrote the book because that was the moment to write it. The book possessed me. It was one of the greatest experiences. You know, I've, I've published 30-odd books, okay? And I can remember writing them. I remember writing The Mosquito Coast. I remember writing – which was a wonderful experience. Railway Bazaar, terrible experience. Various other books, terrible. Some great. This is really one of the best. And I know because I've been there with other books. And it was – very emotional experience because I was writing about 30 years. Very emotional because in the course of 30 years, people die. Children are born. People vanish. Relationships end. Marriages end. You travel. There's so much change in 30 years. And I thought, 
this is incredible. So I was working through all these relationships in a, in a scrupulously factual way, as I thought, tried to be, and also reconstructing conversations, which is always a challenge. I had no diaries to work from. I had only some letters from him. So it was a great experience. And as soon as I saw that the relationship had ended, and many, re many people listening to me now have had the experience of a relationship ending, a friendship ending, or a love affair ending. I tell you, there's a sense in which you must feel liberated by this. And you say, I'm going on, I'm not going back, I'm free, and I will now use this as a way of examining, looking back. You must look back. People say, oh, time takes care of everything. Well, time doesn't take care of anything, but you can be freed by it to look back. So I felt liberated and wrote it. We're talking with Paul Theroux. I'm Richard Walensky with Richard Lupoff. Dick. You mentioned, you mentioned, Paul Theroux, that you have saved Naipaul's letters to you. You also mentioned in the book that you did not retain copies of your own letters to him, but he did, and they wound up at the University of Oklahoma, and you were denied access to them when you wanted to see them. Who denied access? Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? We, <laughs> you're right over the, over the course of 30 years, I write, write him all these letters. He sells them to uh, – now I sound like, oh, God, how could he do this? But actually, uh, I've got his letters but didn't know the protocol of letters. Well, one protocol is that you send a letter to someone and that letter becomes their physical property. But intellectually and far as copyright goes, it's yours. But if you don't have a copy of it, of course, that's all theoretical. That's a Wittgensteinian thing that you own, you own the intellectual property. But where is it? It actually resides in the University of Oklahoma. So his second wife banned, banned me from – in the manner of some second wives, I guess, burning the husband's bridges. Although the husband probably said, I don't want you to see this guy again. Yeah, I couldn't see my letters. Probably hundreds of them there. I just wanted to see what they were, what I said, and I couldn't get into it because they had closed the archive. He had sold them. He sold his archive for $640,000, as I say in the book. This is a detail, really. I don't care about that. But I, it would have been helpful if I'd been able to, to look at it. On the other hand, the book would have been maybe twice as long as if, if, if I had been looking at my letters. I'm not that interested in printing letters that I wrote. But he can't do it. It's spite and strangeness. But I wasn't able to get into the archive. Servidius Shadow begins in 1966 in Africa. You and Naipaul were both living in Africa at the time. What were you both doing there? I was a teacher. I had been in the Peace Corps in Malawi. It was the 60s. I wanted to stay in Africa and do something constructive. So I got a job at Makerere University in Uganda. Naipaul was sent by the Farfield Foundation to be a guest lecturer. I don't know whether the Farfield Foundation means anything to you, but that was a front organization for the CIA in the 60s, part of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which gave money to magazines. And it was revealed as the side of the CIA that wanted to uh, know what was going on, what, what people in third world countries were doing, India, Australia, Africa. And they gave money to magazines and to, to writers. When it was revealed that they had given money to Encounter in London, Melvin Lasky knew about it, but Stephen Spender didn't, and Frank Kermode both resigned from Encounter. Naipaul didn't know anything about the CIA connection, but that's what he was doing there. He, he was guest lecturer, hated it, hated it. There's a section of my book where um, at the end, where the chapter's called Literature is for the Wounded and the Damaged. 
Naipaul said, close all the English departments. They're junk. They're corrupt. They're terrible. The study of English is a waste of time. He taught it, though, at one point. He did yeah, go to Wesleyan. a school. Yeah, yeah. In Wesleyan. Well, also, par pardon me for interrupting, but if, if you would revisit a wonderful anecdote that you give in the book about his being a, a judge in a poetry contest. Yes, in Africa, he was a, a judge. He, well, he, he, he refused to teach any classes. What he said was, I'll let you come and visit me at home one by one, like a tutor does at, at Oxford. He had been at Oxford. I mean, it wasn't until my son went to Oxford that I realized that at Oxford, there are no lectures. You go and see your tutor once a week. He gives you something to write. You go and read it to him, and then off you go, and you do your individual study. There's no lecturing, no sitting in lectures. So you have to be very highly motivated. And the, the dons at Oxford, of course, are just idle, you know, wine-bibbing <laughs> guys <laughs> poncing around in robes, and Naipaul <laughs> knew about that. So these students came to him. So the, what Dick, you're referring to is this, he was judging a poetry contest, and he, he said to me, these poems are abysmal. And I said, well, they may seem so to you, but you've got to do something. He said, none of them is worth a first prize. None of them is even worth a second prize. I think <laughs> I'm going to award third prize. So the highest is going to be third prize, and there's no other prizes. <laughs> so they, <laughs> he said to this well, to the committee, I've made my choice. This is third prize. And they said, what's first and second? He said, none, none. This is the best. Third is the best. <laughs> the best. It's a poor guy. But it, uh, students used to come to him and say, what do, you, what do you think of this? And he'd say, oh, uh, I think you should give up writing. Promise me one thing, will you? Yes. Don't write anything. Don't write poetry. You have no gift. You have no talent. <laughs> don't, don't write. Don't write poetry. But you know? Your handwriting is very impressive. I really like your handwriting. <laughs> Maybe you should do something else. He'd say, you know, learn how to milk cows, learn how to fertilize a field. He 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 mocked students incessantly, and I was there. And he you know he used to be very brutal. He he said to me, "Don't show me anything unless you can take it," and he was very tough. But I needed you know writers need that. I I was in my twenties. I needed someone to say, "Don't do this. You should do that. This is no good." People up to then are saying, yeah, it's pretty good. And that's what generally people say. I, you know, it's kind of interesting. He never said that. He used to say, what do you mean by this word? Paul Theroux, I noticed as we talk here and from your book that there are a lot of contradictions in Naipaul. A few, he makes fun of journalists, yet he winds up writing travel books. Uh, he talks about artistic purity and how one must maintain truth, yet he's always complaining about how he, he never gets paid, which means he could have sold out at any given time and gotten money if it was that much of an issue. He comes across as a racist, terrible racist, and yet he's a third worlder. And I believe you've said in other times he is not a racist. Uh, the teaching incident is another. He complains about teachers, yet he's perfectly willing to do it. There the tremendous amount of contradictions in this man. After a while, I wonder, did you begin to think, you know, my God, the guy's a hypocrite? Oh, yeah. Lots of times I thought he was a hypocrite. But people tend to be hypocrites. I mean, it's very hard to find someone who isn't contradictory in some way. As far as the racism go, yes, he, he, he would make generalizations about people, peoples, nations, countries, sometimes, you know, that verging on race. I can't say he's a racist. It's, it, that's, a, that's a very serious charge. But he would say things. He would make generalizations. Let's put it that way. 
and not only about races, you know, but religion and countries and cultures. Americans, you say, oh, Americans do this, Indians do that, Africans do this, Trinidadians do. So, the useful thing about that for the sorcerer's apprentice, which is what I was, is that I'm listening to it, and he says, "Don't you think so?" And I, I would say, challenged, "No, I don't think so." And he'd say, "Why not?" And I won't say that he changed his mind in a significant way, but he would listen. Although I agreed with him sometimes to keep the peace, often challenged, I would say, and I felt that he said these things so that he was he was challenging me in the way that he would say, why did you use this word? Or he would say things like, I hate music, don't you? I'd say, I don't hate music. Uh, and then he'd say, I told a man that once I hate music and he burst into tears. Isn't that ridiculous? I said, <laughs> he said, you didn't cry. I hate children. I hate dogs. Um, a pregnant woman is the ugliest thing on earth, he once said. I called a New York Times journalist Mel Gusso and said, said did he say that? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I wrote an article about it. Then Mel Gusso attacked me in the New York Times for writing the book because he wants to write a book about my fault. <laughs> anyway, it's a strange world of hypocrisy. <laughs> you know, in the writing world, you get it. To be with Naipaul, you had to be at your best. You, you had to listen. He challenged. And I thought, you know, it's, it's like uh, flint and steel. You're striking sparks with it. If you want to be a writer, a real writer, you don't want people soft-soaping you and just sending you valentines, all it, although it's very nice when they do. If you're starting out, it's not a help. At my stage of the game, yeah, I would like people to, to send me valentines and rave reviews and say, this book rocks. Yeah, that's what I would like. But when you're in your 20s and starting to write, no, that's not what you need. You need the most brutal criticism and people being perfectly frank with you and saying, put this away. Don't do this. <laughs> Maybe like Naipaul said, please don't write any more. Po Promise me you won't write any more <laughs> poems. <laughs> do you recall clearly your very first encounter, the, the very first instance that you set eyes on this man? What went through your mind and what then attracted you to him? Yes, I do. And I, that's an interesting question, Dick. I, I grew up in the 1950s on the East Coast outside of Boston. At that time, I mentioned this in the book. I used to read James Jones. I read Henry Miller. I read John O'Hara, James Ramsey Ullman, White Tower, D.H. Lawrence, uh, William Styron. Uh, Down in Darkness came out in 51. I graduated from high school in 59. To me, a writer was a magician. A zauberer, you know, like Thomas Mann says, just magic, a hero, a towering figure, not the figure that we have now scurrying down to Barnes and Noble to read pathetically, bark at his own or her own work, but someone who is invisible, enigmatic, magic, and mystical. So I grew up with this notion. I remember the, uh, John Hawkes. I read uh, John Hawkes was teaching in, at Brown University in Rhode Island. He wasn't that far away from where I was growing up. But John, Haw I, I thought John Hawkes' books were amazing. I still think so. He's, he died a couple of years ago. I didn't dare meet him. I, I, I found writers unapproachable. I, I wanted to read their work. A writer was just someone, his picture or her picture on the back of the book. So when I first met Naipaul, it was really like meeting Alistair Crowley, you know, the diabolist. It was like meeting Melville, James, Someone, a, a, a figure that I truly admired and someone who was more than human, that his feet didn't touch the ground. Someone who, you know, had maybe horns and bat wings in some respects, in other respects, slightly blurred. And I was delighted to meet him. Maybe I'm sounding a little bit like an infatuated acolyte, 
But I was an acolyte. And when we became friends and this 30-year friendship unfolded, I never ceased to see this aura around him. I mean, in the summer, I see William Styron, Bill Styron, as I think of him, and he's a good friend of mine. The man is still a figure to me, a, a great figure. He doesn't publish as much as he used to, but he's a great figure. And to me, I can't separate him from the magic of his work. I feel that about many figures, particularly older writers. When at first time I met Erskine Caldwell, Robert Penn Warren, whom I met at the American Academy of Arts and Letters, I thought they're, they're great figures. I felt it about Allen Ginsberg, first time I met him. I thought, this man's great. He's great because you know the man or the woman through their work, through their suffering, because that's what people write about. Great writers are writing about their heart and about their struggle and about the mind, the intellect, and about their physical life too. So you know so much about a writer. So the first time I met Naipaul, that's how he appeared to me. And he never ceased to seem that way, as well as being a figure of flesh and blood. You say you don't want to separate figures from their work. Uh, I would say in terms of your writing that if I began reading your travel books, which of course are about as much about Paul Theroux as they are about the places they're in, to some degree I have to like Paul Theroux. And I get to know Paul Theroux. As I interviewed you years ago uh, and we began talking, it was the oddest thing because I felt that I'd been having a conversation with you for the previous three weeks. But in the case of V.S. Paul. If we try to like him or keep him in mind with our work, knowing a book like Servidia's Shadow, it becomes very difficult. Or does it? It shouldn't become difficult because you have to remember, as I said earlier, a writer is a very complex individual. A writer becomes a writer out of that confusion, out of, let's say, the chaos of it could be psychic, it could be psychological, it could be something social, whatever it is, whatever's in the writer's soul is a very confused thing. The reader has to remember that the writer may be a very unpresentable person. It's the secret if, uh, when the writer and reader in the story in my other life where Anthony Burgess meets his greatest fan. I'm your greatest fan. I collect your books. He looks and sees a decrepit individual. Well, I was inventing the story, but it happens time and again. A person comes face to face with a writer and says, people say it to me. I thought you were taller. I thought you were younger. I thought, you know, whatever it is, everyone's, it happens. They see that a writer's human. And that's a great thing because they realize, you know, when, when people see a monster for the first time, you know, when Eichmann was in on trial, I'm not comparing myself to Eichmann, but when Eichmann was on trial in Jerusalem, one of the people who had suffered most from him, his family, saw him and had a hysterical fit. And they asked the man afterwards, why did you have a hysterical fit? And he said, because I realized he's human. He's like me. And the man had seen him as a monster, as, as someone larger than life. And the man was weeping and had to be taken out of the courtroom because he, he said to himself, he, or thought to himself, he's a man. He's a man. How could a man have done this? He wasn't a monster, just a bespectacled, pathetic individual, Adolf Eichmann. So someone sees Naipaul, they read my book, they might say, God, that's terrible. He's a, he's, a, he's a strange guy. Paul Theroux put up with so much. Isn't it terrible? What I'm saying is the opposite. This man created great works of literature, not me, Naipaul. He wrote The House of Mr. Biswas. He wrote An Area of Darkness. This is the man who did it. This is the sensibility that created it.
What do you see when you think of Henry James? You think Henry James is this refined individual. Well, he was, but he was also a man with a big bum and fluttering hands. He wasn't very tall, balding. People did imitations of him all the time, talking the way, oh, 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 is this just very, very, very nice, kind of fluttering hands and, you know, and, and fussing around. That's the guy that gave us the golden bowl and you know, the wings of the dove and all the other. It's the person, the man, the woman. That's, that's what I find really interesting. So someone should come away with this book, I hope, saying literature is written by people. It's written by humans. It's written by people who have failings, weaknesses, and worries. You knew Naipaul for 30 years. You were friends for 30 years. Is the friendship completely over? Yes, the fr over, as over, as, as dead as it doornail as dead as it could possibly be. I say that in a kind of um, with a kind of curiosity like looking at a bug on a pin because um, I think when a friendship is over, it really is over. A love affair can burst into flame. It's like a lot of greasy rags that just, you know, sit on them long enough, keeping them in the dark long enough and they'll heat up because the libido is a curious little engine in us that produces love and, 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 and sexual desire, even when we don't want it. Down boy, you say, but it, there it is. I think a friendship is different. A friendship is based on trust. It's based on belief, faith, confidence. And when it's over, it, it, it's really over and you feel you're, you're liberated by it and you look back and you examine it. I can never envisage it reconnecting. It can't. Now, Paul said in, in, in The Mimic Men, one of his books, that when a person lets you down, the nearer that person is to you, the more intimate the friend, the quicker you must let him or her go because the person needs to move on. They, have, they need a new master, a new friend. It's over. When, the, when a very devoted friend fails you, it's over completely. I know he believes that and he used to say it repeatedly. So it's over, but that's interesting. That's a good thing. That I've been, I was freed to write the book. It's not a, a celebrity tell-all book in any respect. It's a book about, as I say, thirty years of creation and 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 friendship with a small, very brief surgical ending, which I think is kind of dramatic. Myself, it happened in a very dramatic way. Do you uh, care what Naipaul thinks of this book? Oh yes. Naipaul has always been the reader over my shoulder. I wanted him to read books of mine. He seldom commented on them, but he often favorably, he'd say, oh, you've written another good book. This, this is good. He would never in, in any detail because in all respects, he was the knight and I was the squire. He was the sorcerer. I was the apprentice. I didn't mind that. I, you know, as long as he didn't say anything bad, like don't ever write a book like this again. <laughs> but writing this book, I wanted it to be worthy of him. In, in texture, in words, in, in syntax, in the way it was written. I wanted him to like it, to read it, to find it true. Your question is, do I care what he thinks? Yeah, yeah, a lot. But he probably won't read it or he may read it later. But he should read it and, and I hope would think, oh, yes, that's the way it is. But, you know, when two people take the same trip, Graham Greene took a trip with his cousin Barbara Greene in Liberia in 1935. Green wrote Journey Without Maps. His cousin wrote a fairly unknown book called Too Late to Turn Back. They're both accounts of the same trip. They're completely different books. Green's is dark and brooding. The cousin's Too Late to Turn Back is a kind of jolly, chirpy, young English girl's book. And I think Naipaul might see 
the progress of this 30 years differently from me, inevitably. There's a term that, that you quote him as using frequently in Africa in the 60s, infies. What are infies? Infies. He used to say infies. People uh, have thought that's – he meant Africans. He didn't mean Africans. He An infi was an inferior, one of someone he considered to be inferior. So an infi is shorthand for someone he didn't like, someone he thought didn't measure up. He said that people went to Africa, lecturers went to Africa, aid workers went to Africa because they couldn't make it in the big world. It's not true actually. You sometimes find the finest – I thought some of the finest minds I've ever seen. Colin Turnbull studying Africans or there was, there, was, there was a painter there who was wonderful. Nadine Gordimo was there. I used to visit occasionally. Anthropologists of all kinds, sociologists, painters, poets, whatnot. To Naipaul, many of these people were infies and he thought they couldn't make it. Actually, people went to Africa in the 60s because Africa was opening up. Uh, Naipaul had a way of referring – shorthand for referring to people or things he didn't like, usually in a funny way. He intended yeah. his humor. Didn't Af always make you laugh. Africa in that era was at the end of an era and you quote Naipaul frequently as speaking to other – Indians living in Africa and saying, what are you going to do when the crunch comes? What was the crunch? The crunch in the end was Idi Amin taking over. But Naipaul always thought that what would happen in Africa – you see, it's very important to remember that Naipaul's from Trinidad. A Trinidadian Hindu, Indian, people of African descent perceives them as a threat. And he always saw Africa in Trinidadian terms. Now, I've never been to Trinidad. I don't know what the situation is there. I got it from Naipaul. Could be true, could not be, but possibly not. Leave that aside. That's That was his thinking. In Africa, he always thought the Indians are going to be overwhelmed by the Africans. In Uganda, they were. In Kenya, they had problems. It's not universally true. From country to country, situations have varied. Although in the 1970s, Indians were expelled from Uganda by a racist government, semi, you know, military government headed by Idi Amin. Naipaul didn't see Amin coming but he felt that, that the Indians were going to be under threat with. Curiously enough, the Indians have gone back to Uganda and, and are doing business there in, in the way that they were in the 1960s. He said, yeah, the crunch is going to come. You're going to get thrown out. It's going to be terrible and you need a plan. And sometimes the, the Indians would say, OK, what should I do? And sometimes they'd say, we're all right. And when they said we're all right, Naipaul used to turn his back and say, he's a dead man. He's a dead man. He's lying. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an infi. And now, now that a little over 30 years have gone by, you recently revisited Africa. What has happened in these 30 years? You know, that's a really interesting question. The country that I was in the Peace Corps, I served in the Peace Corps in Malawi. It was called Nyasaland when I went there. The country has gone to hell in a handbasket. For various reasons, they have overpopulation, they cut all the trees down, they ran out of money, they owe a lot of money and they have AIDS. They have the worst AIDS epidemic on the face of Africa and that's saying a lot. They're going to lose, they think, 30 to 40 percent of their population. But it's not just losing population. They have children who have no parents, you know, parentless families. It's terrible. They can't care for people. So in a word, what has happened in 30 years because there's no such place as the third world. That's just a, a phrase. There are individual countries and Malawi is not doing too great. Uganda has kind of bounced back. Zimbabwe, I was there recently. 
not doing too badly. They're having a kind of a, a rough patch at the moment. Zambia's not doing well. Tanzania varies. Kenya, uh, up and down. But depending on what you're talking about, some are doing better than others. Malawi is doing immeasurably well. I only can, can speak for the countries that I was in. It's not a happy story, the African story generally, but there are bright spots here and there. You quote Naipaul in the 60s as saying, it, it, it's all just going to go back to jungle. Yes. Naipaul's idea of jungle was the metaphor, which is it's going to be dog eat dog. And it didn't turn out to be that. What happened was, I think, Africa is a place that the West has never been particularly interested in unless they had diamonds, chrome, or silver, or bauxite, or some mineral that they could rob them of. If you go to Lisbon, there's a big building outside of Lisbon, which when the Portuguese were running their colonies in Africa was used to cut diamonds. It's a huge building. It's not occupied at the moment because Portugal no longer has uh, colonies there. When Portugal was running Mozambique and Angola, and this isn't just a rhetorical debating point, when they were running the colonies, they were ransacking, robbing, and marauding them of their resources and not doing anything else. So they took all the diamonds. They spent it. Little Portugal was spending all this Angolan wealth and running Portugal and using Angola and Mozambique as places where they would simply – that was their tenant farm, let's say. So it ended. If you go to Mozambique or Angola now, you find no schools, you find no roads, you find no infrastructure, you find no or very few educated people. And for 25 years, they were at war. There were guerrillas fighting the Portuguese and then, and then the South Africans and right-wingers in the States were, were financing the Renama War. 25 years of, of war. So what did they get out of all the diamonds and all the resources? Nothing. Nothing. When Naipaul talked about a place going back to jungle, he sort of meant that. But it wasn't because Africans are inferior or, or, or couldn't run their own affairs. It's because they were pillaged, they were mismanaged, and they were colonized. It, it's a classic colonialism where the wealth of the place was taken, and when it was gone, they left. Look at the French in, in, in Tahiti. They've said they're not going to explode any more bombs. Great, and they're leaving. The French exploded 160 atomic devices in Mororoa Atoll, and now they want to leave but they are leaving the Polynesians with nothing. The colonial countries left Africa with nothing. It wasn't as though they, they left them with any institutions. So Naipaul's wrong. I, thought, I think he's wrong. It hasn't gone back to jungle. What it's gone back to is an earlier state, a kind of pre-colonial state, but immeasurably diminished by the people from the West, mainly from the West, who went there and didn't help, but simply left the place worse off. Paul Theroux, who later reconciled with Naipaul, had visited him recently. We had some very ups and downs over the years, he said, but there was great satisfaction in reconnecting. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>